Welcome to Now Appalachia. The Appalachian region covers 13 states in the U.S. and over 25 million people call the region home. This podcast profiles the authors and publishers with connections to Appalachia and how the region influences and impacts their creative work. And now, here's your host, author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. And hello, friends, and we welcome you to another episode of Now Appalachia, heard here exclusively on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, as we continue profiling those outstanding authors and publishers that call Appalachia home. And we have another outstanding author with us today to talk to us about his latest collection of short stories, and his name is Evan Williams, and we're glad to have Evan with us today. His new short story collection is called Stories of the New West, which has just been released by Main Street Bragg Press, which we're going to talk to him about that press here uh, in just a minute as well. He is a public school teacher. He's author of three collections of stories, including Thorn, Canyons, and this latest collection that we're going to be profiling today, Stories of the New West. His work has appeared in Witness, Kenyan Review, and Alaska Quarterly Review. He's published over 40 short stories in a variety of literary magazines. He also holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of Montana. And most recently, he was the and delivered the inaugural reading at Eastern Oregon University's Revived Arts Poetica Visiting Writer Series. And we're glad to have him on the program today to talk with us about this fine new collection of short stories that you were going to want to add to your to be read pile. So Evan, welcome to the program. Good to have you here on Now Appalachia. Oh, thank you very much, Elliot. And thank you for the nice introduction. Oh, my pleasure. So glad to have you here. I can't wait to talk to you uh, about this story collection. But I wanted to ask you about something that, that I found really funny when I was doing some research on you. And I had to, just had to ask you about it. Um, and I was looking up some information about your, your background and, and your education and everything. And uh, I came across something on your website. And I thought it'd be a great way to kind of open our uh-huh. discussion today. Um, you have your MFA from uh, the University of Montana, which is one of the best uh, creative writing programs in the country. But you write on your website that it's a little tattered and faded (laughs) and that your students see it on the classroom wall and they're like, huh, what is that? (laughs) And some days you do too. (laughs) What's the story about that? Well, the story there is that um, I received my MFA back in 1991. So that was, was you know, two generations ago, it feels like. And from what I gathered today, um, first of all, it seems like uh, MFA programs are are more rigorous than they were back when I obtained my MFA degree in 1991. Um, the other thing is that I personally would like to tell myself in, in the time since then, I have learned so much more about writing in the three decades since. Um, in particular, a writer in Portland named Martha Geese, a little shout out there. Uh, I've taken numerous classes. She's basically like my mentor. And I feel like, although I got a good foundation at the University of Montana and I made important connections with other writers and built, I began building my writing community there, I'll have to say, sometimes I look back at that MFA and I wonder, I, I think that there's some legitimacy when people have that discussion about whether MFAs are required or not. Yeah, very good. And I, we've had some other authors on the program over the years that, that have said something similar uh, about the MFA. And 
I know that we mentioned a moment ago, you've published over 40 short stories in a variety of literary magazines and your new story collection, Stories of the New West, uh, is your third collection of stories. What is it about the short story genre uh, that's appealing to you or that you feel like you gravitate towards as a writer? I think that it began when I was in college uh, as an undergrad. And uh, one of my uh, one of the guys on my dorm wing was uh, in a class where they were reading some short stories by Barry Lopez. Uh, the collection was River Notes, and then the second collection was Desert Notes and pretty thin little slim short story collections. And I read those and I just, I read them both in one night. I had an awakening and I just knew this is, this is this type of thing I wanted to write. And I've essentially been pursuing that almost as a sense of a calling ever since. And, um, you know, other writers have continued to inform that process. Uh, we've all gone probably through a phase where we got enamored of Ernest Hemingway's writing. And, you know, I've taken some deep dives into studying his work, uh, uh, but others too, uh, lots of other short story writers that I definitely feel like my own writing is kind of in conversation with the short stories that I'm reading. And now at this point, um, I really, I'm, yeah, I've written a lot of short stories. I, I, I have enough for a new collection, which I'm kind of sitting on the back burner until it feels ready. Um, but yeah, it almost kind of, to me, it almost seems as if, you know, there are people who study, poets study different poetic forms and there's certain rigors within the form. And I kind of take the same approach when I'm looking at short stories. Very good, very good. And this collection of short stories, Stories of the New West is all set as the title kind of implies out West, but all in kind of the contemporary West uh, in terms of contemporary times. What is it about the, the West that makes it such an interesting and fertile place to put these characters in all these different circumstances that you put them in? Um, I'm really glad you asked because you picked up on something. The use of the word new is definitely ironic. Um, these are stories set in the contemporary West, but one of the things about the West is that it's a very old landscape. And so when you get out there, uh, the problems that people are facing in the West nowadays are just different expressions of the same sorts of prom problems that people have faced before. Um, in terms of let's looking just at westward expansion, uh, people have come to the West believing it held some sort of promise. There's a lot of people coming to the West. It could be for resource extraction. It could be uh, just the migration of people from the East Coast to the West Coast. Um, but just kind of, or it could be just looking to get away for some soulful reflection out in the West. That's sort, the sort of thing that the Western landscape invites. Uh, however, I would like to offer that that's not a new story. I mean, it's, um, it's often a story where the allure and the promise is broken. In fact, most of the stories in this collection, I realized if there's one thing that ties them together, they're people dealing with the aftermath of not necessarily good choices. And those choices were made with hope, with high hopes, and they didn't come true. In fact, if you even look at the cover of the book, um, this was uh, a photographic project by Ansel Adams, who's well known for his Western photography, especially his black and white photography. But, you know, during the Depression, when, you know, the money was tight, he, he did a gig for the parks, the Department of the Interior, and they did some color photography, which was a risk for him to try color photography, he hadn't really done it before. And he eventually backed out of it. Uh, 
the photos are in the public domain, which works out for me because they're on the cover. But um, he backed out because it just it wasn't for him. There maybe there was a promise there, but like so many promises in the West, it didn't come true. And then you have to deal with the aftermath. Yeah, very well said. And it reminded me, I, I know this is different genres, but the two writers that I really enjoy uh, that write about the the, the West, uh, C.J. Box and uh, Craig Johnson, kind mm -hmm. of have that same theme running through with C.J. Box's Joe Pickett and uh, Craig Johnson's Walt Longmire, that both of these men just want to to live in peace with their families and enjoy nature and fish and hunt and everything. And But all these people they come across in the stories, many of them end up end up dead as a result of decisions made and, and poor decisions made. But but they realize when they come out there that what they're looking for never really materializes, or it's totally different uh, than what they uh, what they experienced. And so that uh -huh. kind of that that manifest destiny idea uh, gets broken a lot. And and you're right, it, it does kind of come up in, in your stories as well. Did did you thematically set that out to have kind of be a theme in your stories or is that just something that as you were writing sort of kept coming up over and over um no i, I didn't really set out with that per se but what what happens is when you're assembling a collection of stories you're looking for that perfect balance where each story stands out on its own but they have some sort of unifying thread that justifies why are these stories banded together in this collection and you don't want every story to be about exactly the same thing because that would be boring to read. But what you want is you want to see some sort of thematic threads. And th if it's something as simple as, oh my gosh, I think that this particular set of stories, the interesting choices have already been made and the characters are wrestling with consequences. That little piece right there uh, really is the piece that I latched onto. Now, having said that, um, I did an interview with another writer and uh, Chrissy Kaloya, and she she's from Minnesota, but I think she teaches in Florida now. But she said, I noticed there's a lot of father son stuff throughout this. And unconsciously, I had no idea. I had no idea. But then I started looking through the table of contents and looking at the stories. And I realized there is a lot of father son drama in these. So you know, there's other threads, which serendipitously other writers or other readers can find in there. Absolutely. And, and you talked about choices and consequences and characters uh, always kind of not knowing how they got there. That leads me into the one story I wanted to ask you about called Knit Pearl. And um, I, I'm so mad at this one character for what she's done. And you and I talked about this, I think, a little bit before <laughs> we went on the uh, before we started recording. Uh, it's about sort of this love triangle that exists between three characters, Jesse, Michael and a guy named Tim. And I just wanted to read just a couple of sentences from the beginning of the story and then have you comment on it. Um, you open up with late in the morning, Jesse and Michael made love. Jesse didn't mind. Lying on her back, she watched the apartment ceiling, the cracks in the plaster, the deepening lines. And afterwards, she showered, put on her bathrobe, Michael's bathrobe, and went down to the mailboxes. And so we get this sense of, of these two people that, that are in love and, and have expressed that physically. But then later on, there's sort of another rooster in the hen house when Tim shows up, where she goes to see Tim. Um, and I guess what makes me so uh, upset with Jesse is that you know, she knows what she's doing is wrong and that she's going to hurt Michael, but she doesn't really seem to understand how she got to this point where she's juggling both of these men uh, in her life at the same time. So tell us a little bit about, about that story and Jesse and what she's kind of up to. All right. Well, um, I think that uh, she 
uh, as a character making bad choices and not exactly sure why she's making them. However, um, the fact that she somewhat indifferently has this affair with Tim sort of is a lens that makes her realize that there's aspects of her relationship with her long-term boyfriend, lover, Michael, some aspects of that relationship that she's also indifferent about. And, or not indifferent, but not quite sure if it's the relationship she wants. And so like when they're making love and she's just somewhat blasé looking at the ceiling, looking at the cracks. And I believe later in, in the story, when she has sex with Tim, the guy upstairs, she's also looking at the ceiling and she even makes a remark about, wow, this is the same textured plaster as my ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so she's trying to find, well, what do I want out of a relationship? And in general, is it what this Tim guy offers or is it what Michael offers? And, and Michael as, is at a choosing point too, because he's just been offered a big internship or a fellowship to go study in Alaska. So it's a, it's a prompt. I mean, she's going to have to decide. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, and it just reminds me of, the, of those people. She just reminds me of people I've known in my life that uh, not only don't know how they kind of got into certain circumstances, but then won't make a decision to rectify the problem. You know, she clearly needs to decide, is she going to go with Michael and support him as he starts that, that uh, fellowship, or is she going to be with Tim? And and not making a decision, she's ultimately made a decision in a way. Yes. Um, yes. Which is just something that that I found fascinating. But I was really mad at her for the way she treated Michael because I thought he was a pretty <laughs> good guy in the story and and didn't deserve that. But but it's a, it's a great story, and it was one of my favorite ones in the collection. I wanted to ask you about, about a second story um, that really caught my attention in the collection. It was called This Once My Story. And I just wanted to read uh, a, a couple of lines that caught my attention and just have you give us some, some explanation, mm -hmm. and some context to it, because um, I think it really sets up what's going on in the story. And you write, the owners of this fine house beside the sea, when they return from Province or Bali or Fifth Avenue or wherever they've gone, they'll sniff the spices in the air, they'll count up the china and crystal and silver that bears their monogram, and they'll sigh, bamboozled again. <laughs> what is that referring to and what is going on in that story? Oh, well, that's a story about a, a, a codependent woman, the narrator, who whose lover is this master chef, but he is a, um, he's kind of a fraud. He's, he's, he talks a big game, but he's never been able to hold down a job. He's um, dominates their relationship. Uh, and what he's doing at this point is he's freeloading off uh, in a vacation community where it's off season. And so everyone's gone and he's just living in a house that, uh, that the owners have essentially uh, winterized and, and left for the season. And so he can, he can bamboozle his, his girlfriend, you know, look what we got here. We've got, you know, this beautiful China, that's beautiful table. I've got this amazing kitchen where I'm cooking everything, but it's, it's just all a fraud. He's, He's not there at the behest of the owners. He's not there as a, any sort of caretaker. He's, he's literally broken into the house. He's squatting in the house. Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah, it's just part of the, the complete masquerade that he's presenting that she wants so bad to believe, but it's very clear to the reader that it's all a fraud. And it's clear that she knows it's a fraud, but she's suppressing that knowledge as people do when they're in love with someone. I mean, she's in denial. 
Yeah, she's, she's just an unreliable narrator. <laughs> absolutely. Yes, she certainly is. And she and she know and she knows what she's feeling is true. But like I said, she's just kind of in denial because she loves him and doesn't want to believe that what he's doing is is the way things really are. And, and she really kind of compartmentalizes that. Yeah, uh, very, very well. Uh, we're talking with Evan Morgan Williams on this episode of Now Appalachia about his new collection of short stories, Stories of the New West. And Evan will come back and talk about more of those stories uh, in just a minute. But I wanted to ask you a little bit. You mentioned uh, Martha Geese as being someone who is a writer you worked with that had a um, significant impact <clears throat> on your life and as a writer. But you've worked with a lot of other writers, Kim Stafford, uh, Anthony Doerr. Uh, uh, Bill Kittredge and, and some others. And I was just wanting to ask you a little bit about what it was like working with them, with, with those three specifically, because um, a lot of people have heard those names and have read those books by those authors. And, and what did you learn as a writer through that process of getting a chance to work with them and kind of study under them? Oh, that's a great question. Um, studying with Bill Kittredge was sort of my baptism by fire at the University of Montana, because he was the he was the icon of the Montana program, along with the late Richard Hugo. Um, in the workshop room at University of Montana, there was a picture of Richard Hugo on the wall hold, holding a rocks glass of bourbon, looking maybe three sheets to the wind. And um, Bill Kittredge was the other part of that legacy. Um, so I can't say that I learned as much from him. I was naive enough that uh, there were people who were like, I came to this program to study with Bill Kittredge. And I was kind of like, oh, I didn't know that was a thing you did. I, I, I came to Montana because I like Montana and I like the city and all of that. And they let me in. <laughs> Let's not forget that little piece. Um, but then in terms, you next mentioned uh, Anthony Doerr. Uh, back when, you know, as a teacher, I get a small stipend for professional development each summer. And one year they let me use it to go to the Tin House Writers Workshop. And I got into Anthony Doerr's workshop. Uh, the workshop was good, but what really was most amazing is that uh, at the end of having your story critiqued, uh, Anthony Doerr, Tony, he takes, he takes you to lunch. So you get a one-to-one -one with Tony for about an hour. And we're sitting there eating lunch and you think we're just talking about lunch, but he found these tiny ways to cycle it back to the story. And he just, he nailed my story. He nailed the story in literally a sentence or two. I walked out of there like, oh my gosh, I know exactly how to revise this story. It was amazing. Um, I revised it. I, I, you know, proofread and fixed and after all of those other iterations, sent it off and the Kenyan Review picked it up. It was a huge win. And it all came from one lunch and literally maybe even one sentence of that lunch that he got in there. It was amazing. It really woke up my eyes to the idea that the, the, while the writer's workshop is a amazing model, it's the tried and true standard practice. Uh, kind of a mentorship model also has a role to play because I got a lot more from that one-on-one -on -one with him at lunch than I did from the workshop itself. Um, as for Kim Stafford, uh, his workshops are more generative. He doesn't really run a workshop where you're critiquing each other's work. Uh, he, his workshops are more in the spirit of generating new text which is a great, if you're in that part of a draft, that's a great place to be. You're surrounded by people. He builds community. Um, he's just incredibly warm. I swear he remembers every face he's ever uh, interacted with. Uh, and in his case, 
he, I was working on a story and struggling, kind of fighting, fighting it. And he just made a comment about the title. He said, well, what if you change the title to this? And it completely changed the entire story. Uh, suddenly the story had its theme. Suddenly the story had its point of view. The point of view is actually embedded in the title. It's, it just had all of these pieces that were missing. Uh, and then I just ran with that. And I also got that story published. That's great. And I think, you know, one of the kind of underlying themes you're emphasizing here is if you're a beginning writer or you're stuck at the beginning of a draft, middle of a draft, uh, maybe you have sort of a garbage draft that you don't know what to do with, uh, to not be afraid to go to these workshops and to seek out uh, other writers and to seek out mentorship opportunities. Because I think sometimes we think, well, you know, I could never have lunch with Anthony Doerr. I'm just not, I'm not at his level or whatever, but you know, what you found with working with those three authors, and I know you've worked with others too, is that um, there's so much value in that and sort of stepping out as a writer on kind of taking a leap of faith and stepping out and, and, and getting that feedback and help it ends up paying off huge dividends in the end. Yeah. And it also feels like um, that's one reason we have to support each other because we're all going to be in that position. You know, every story writer is going to be in the position where their story needs to be revised and they're, they have blind spots that they're going to need to have other people talk about and point out. And, and maybe there's things about the story that are wrong. They know they're wrong, but they can't quite articulate it. And they need other people to articulate that. I often find myself nodding my head saying, yeah, you're right. You called me out on that one. I, I see. Uh, but then the other piece of that is also um, just every writer in some ways is kind of starting from scratch with each story. There's going to be, you know, that you're nodding your head like, yeah, when you're trying to revise something and suddenly the old tricks don't work and you want to be true to the new story. So every writer is going to be in that position where they, they need a supportive community. It could be a writing workshop. It could be a small writing group. It could be a mentor. But those pieces need to be in place. We're chatting with Evan Morgan Williams on this episode of Now Appalachia. His new story collection is called Stories of the New West. And we'll come back uh, to those stories because I wanted to ask you about another one in the collection uh, that, that was one of my favorites. It's one of the shorter stories in the collection. It is called It Is Arranged. Um, and I just love how you, you write this just very kind of um, almost stream of consciousness matter of fact. And I'll just read a couple sentences here. Uh, you write, here's what will happen. My husband and I will dress to go out, maybe catch a movie. Did you know that he and I do nothing together anymore? Of course not. <laughs> Nayanya Pritt will call you as soon as we leave the house. She will wear her hair loose and simple to undo. Maybe she will wear a blouse that is likewise easy. You can imagine that part. <laughs> so I, I felt like in tone and, and, and everything that this was a little different because I felt like I was right on the shoulder, kind of inside the uh, the mind of the narrator as she just is kind of going through, look, I know exactly what's going to happen and this is what's going to happen. So uh, what ultimately ends up happening with, with that story and those characters? Uh, well, this is a, um, in that particular story, it's a story about a narrator who is, has a crush it's, it's a teenage formative years type of story, a, um, a failed relationship from one's formative years. And it's uh, the, the mother of the, the narrator's beloved intervenes and pretty much sabotages the entire relationship. Uh, and what's happening there is um, it's kind of a trope I've used 
not by design, but it just accidentally is one of these things that tends to come up a lot at the climax of the story, at the absolute arc of the story's climax, I will sometimes have a character give a little mini story within the larger story. And that's the mini story. What you just read an excerpt from is the mother telling her mini story, essentially sabotaging the prospects for this narrator to hook up with her daughter. <laughs> and I, um, I realized that I have a lot of story. In fact, if, there's other spots in the collection where somebody in the uh, somebody in the story busts out a little mini story right at the climax. Um, it's almost there as a parable. It's almost there because it has some um, some arc within the larger arc that um, speaks to the larger arc. Uh, but it's one of my favorite ways to sort of unlock a voice. Uh, one of the things as a writer that is really difficult is you want to make sure that you get out of your own head so that the characters can fully become themselves. My feeling is if I'm, if I, you know, you want to be in control of your writing, but if you're too much in control of your writing, the characters never fully become themselves. And one of the ways I think I do that is maybe sometimes just to stop and let the character tell their story. Uh, and, and that's what happened in this particular case. Uh, oh, I want to tell one other thing about this particular story though. I just remembered that it's, it was inspired by, there's a story by Isaac Babel called You Must Know Everything. It's in the New Yorker. It's in the New Yorker fiction podcast. Uh, it's George Saunders is reading it. I mean, it's just amazing. But in the middle of that story, there's a character at the absolute climax of the story busts out into a little tiny mini story that just savages the narrator. And um, I this is my inspiration for writing this particular story. I, I took that Isaac Babel story. I rewrote it by hand. I, I wrote notes all around it, tried to understand exactly how it was working. And, and what you just brought back to me, which makes me feel real good, is, um, is the product of that. That's my version of kind of the same arc. Excellent. Very, very good. So what is Evan Williams working on next? <laughs> right now, uh, I have this amazing writing group. There's six of us, and we have been together for five years. We met in a class called Write a Novel in 10 Weeks. <laughs> and the first, the first night, the instructor says, none of you are going to write a novel in 10 weeks. <laughs> I just sorry called. To the sorry to disappoint you, but no, you're not, not going <laughs> to. Yeah. yeah, but at the end of the 10 weeks, the six of us looked at each other and said, hey, let's keep going. And so we, for five years now, I've been working on a novel. I'm in the second draft. It's 500 pages. It needs to be way, way shorter. And, um, oh gosh, I have a deadline with my writing group to get this second draft done by the end of November. I hope I meet my deadline because um, after five years and 500 pages, uh, there, there's a, there's an, you know this, there's an aspect to writing where it is labor, it's work. It's, you know, it's your nose to the grindstone type of thing. And I'm kind of reaching that phase in the project. I understand. understand that totally. Well, hopefully you'll get it finished by then. And that'll also coincide with NaNoWriMo, which also occur, always occurs in November. So that would be a good, a good fitting way to close out that month is to have. Yeah. Yeah. That could be my incentive right there. 
Absolutely, absolutely. So Evan, as we finish up with you in our final moments, uh, if anyone wants to get in contact with you to talk to you about uh, your new collection of short stories, Stories of the New West, or if they want to learn more about Canyons or Thorn, your other uh, collections of short stories, or just get in contact with you in any way, how can they uh, find you and get in contact with you, first of all? And then where can they get copies of Stories of the New West? <laughs> well, you can get Stories of the New West from the Main Street RAG website. Main Street RAG is an awesome little press. They've, they've been doing it for decades now. Um, a really strong presence in Appalachia, by the way. They, they well represent Appalachian authors. Uh, in terms of me and my website and my other books, you should go to evanmorganwilliams.com and you can see what I'm all about right there. Uh, the other thing you can do, I'm, I'm on Twitter. My handle is at evmowi. <laughs> E-V-M-O-W-I, Evmowi. So you can follow me on Twitter there too. Excellent. It's been our pleasure today to have on the program our guest, Evan Morgan Williams, who is the author of the outstanding new collection of stories, Stories of the New West, set in the contemporary West about some characters who uh, realize that things are not always going to turn out exactly the, the way that they should. And we talked about three of those stories today, Knit Pearl, uh, this one's my story, and it is arranged, but every story in the collection you're going to enjoy, and you're going to want to add this collection of stories to your to-be-read pile as you move through the fall. So, Evan, congratulations on this outstanding new collection. Uh, congratulations to you for it, and uh, we're so happy to uh, have you on the program to talk about it. And as you get that novel ready for publication, uh, we'd love to have you back on the program to talk about it. So thanks for being with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Elliot. I appreciate this very much. We want to take a moment as we finish up on this edition of Now Appalachia to give a special shout out and a thanks to our executive producer of Now Appalachia and all the podcasts that you hear on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Her name is Pam Stack. We appreciate all of Pam's support behind the scenes, making sure that these podcasts get uploaded and recorded and distributed uh, each and every episode. We couldn't do it without her help, and we appreciate that and her support so very much. We also want to remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the authors on the air global radio network. And that will do it for us this time on now Appalachia, please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon. I hope. You've been listening to now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the air global radio network for questions or comments about this program. And to learn more about the host, Elliot Parker and his books, visit his website at www.elliotparker.com. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next from the authors on the air global radio network.